And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's The Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of The Rodcast, David Steele. Well, well, now we are talking. There you have it, Larry Babb. Thank you, as always, for that great introduction. We are back. It is good to be back. We are back broadcasting live on tape to you once again from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California. I am your host, David Steele. And you have found yourself right at the top of an all-new episode of The Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation. Now, it has indeed been a while since we've seen you, and just in case you're wondering, it has something to do with the very folks who kindly bring you each one of these Rodcast episodes. And of course, I'm referring to the American Hot Rod Foundation. As some of you might know, we launched a membership program back in late January of this year, and I'm happy to say that it has been a great success. In fact, the orders for new memberships came in at an initial rate that we were so not prepared for, and the mad scramble to fulfill these orders began. And, you know, this might not sound like a big deal to you unless... You take into consideration the fact that, and this is one of my favorite things about the the membership package, each person that signs up gets a personalized AHRF timing tag. Now, these are made in the style of the original SCTA tags that are still earned by Dry Lakes Racers to this day, and the response to them has been great, I'm happy to say. Uh, but that said, <laughs> it takes me... Yes, me. It takes me between mm, 10 to 12 minutes to stamp out each tag, depending. And now, you know, if you fan this math out to what it what is now approaching 600 orders, you'll you'll understand our dilemma. So it was basically a triage approach to each workday around here for a few months. And, uh, you know. We have we've only really caught up with the orders as of about a month ago. We're we're neck and neck with them now, and they're still coming in steadily. And we just cannot thank you guys enough who've hopped on board to support our work. It is just fantastic. Um, but now, don't get me wrong. I I just want to be clear. I'm I ain't complaining. It's a wonderful thing to see this level of support for our work. Um, we're humbled and and inspired by it. it it's definitely set back the production of the Rodcast, but uh, that's okay. And, you know, I've actually been really knocked out by how many folks have reached out to me to say, hey, what gives? You know, where's where's my next Rodcast episode? That's super cool. I love that. I love that people are listening. Um, well, anyway, I can tell you that it it hasn't been for lack of wanting, and I do appreciate the interest in the show. It's great. Um, but because it has been way too long since we've had this sucker out of the garage, I'm going to spare you a lengthy introduction for that reason and for the simple fact 
that our guest today, Roland Leong, really needs no introduction. I mean, if you've been paying attention to big time drag racing in any way over the past five decades, you'll already be up to speed on Roland. From making history with Don Prudhomme in the mid 60s to launching the careers of more more top fuel and funny car drivers than we could possibly name here. Uh, winning enough national events over his career that it must have felt like old hat at some point to, to him. I mean, and this is the part that really gets me. I mean, if you, you think about like Roland's level of understanding on how to put a winning tune and setup into a top fuel or funny car, I mean, it's something that has to be described as like almost on a superhuman level. I mean, how many people will walk this planet with a comparable handle on such a complex and volatile thing? I mean, I don't know. A couple dozen, maybe. Uh, I honestly don't know. But I do know that getting to sit down and talk with Roland uh, was a huge thrill for me. And I think you'll enjoy hearing our talk as well. Now, before we push play on this, I just have to thank two people who made this interview possible in the first place, and that would be Bruce Meyer and Cole Coons. It was a great day when my phone rang in the fall of last year, just only to hear Bruce Meyer's voice on the other end saying, David, I'm standing here in my shop with Don Prudhomme and Roland Leong, and you need to interview these guys. And I just thought, well, yeah, I mean, I definitely agreed. And I can't thank Bruce enough for coming up with the idea and making an introduction so that the scheduling of this could begin. And make no mistake, Mr. Prudhomme is still on the agenda, but as luck would have it, we got to Roland first. And by the way, that only happened because my friend Cole Kuntz is a buddy of Roland's and he helped me get on his schedule. So, uh, and by the way, Cole also gave of his time, his equipment, and his expertise to basically run all of the recording gear while I sat and got to talk with this great man. So again, I can't thank Bruce and Cole enough for making this happen. It is so great to have such great friends. So thank you guys. And so now, without any further ado, sit back, buckle up, as we bring you our Rodcast interview with drag racing legend, Roland Leong. Okay, you're rolling? Yep. Okay. No, I'm rolling. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, thank you for being here and for taking the time out. Oh, you're welcome. To talk with us, we really appreciate it. I start every interview with the rudest question of all. What is your birth date and where were you born? I was born and raised in Hawaii. Uh, May 22nd, 1944. And when you say Hawaii, where? Honolulu, Hawaii. Honolulu, Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And what was, your, what was your family doing when you were born? What were your folks doing? Uh, my father, I don't know if he had his, well, anyway, he was in the insurance, had his own insurance agency. And uh, when I, was, I guess when I was born or close to when I was born, and that was their business. And was it a family business? Did your mom work there? Yes. And... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And was that his business for his whole life? Yeah, ironically, uh, sadly, he died at 62 years old in 1972 of a heart attack walking off the golf course. And my mom lived to 93, so she had a good life. And she ran the insurance agency after my father passed. Was your dad at all responsible for your interest in... Not at all. Not at all. No. Uh, he wanted me to go to school, but I didn't. <laughs> and uh, that uh, kind of made him mad. <laughs> but uh, I guess uh, she ran the agency. Anyway, she, I guess she figured that uh, maybe schooling wasn't for everybody because <laughs> both my sisters uh, graduated from college. And uh, I don't know, I was in the cars and uh, I ended up at Dragmaster Company and uh, uh, sweeping the floor, painting chassis, doing whatever at uh, 17 years old. Just to back up, as a young guy, in, as a kid in Hawaii, was there car culture around you? Uh, well, I guess... Did you see cars and were interested in... Yes, I was interested in cars. Yeah. Uh, I guess I hung around with older guys, interested in cars, raised my mom's car. Uh, Tell me about that. Well, I just put seatbelts in it at the time, and that's all you had to have. It was a 59 Oldsmobile. I took it to the drag strip, uh, raced it. I think I was 15 years old. You get your license at 15. Just so happened my sister and her boyfriend were at the races. And uh, came home and told my mom, and uh, I got banned <laughs> from driving for a little while because of it. Uh, but I guess that, that's what, what you might call the beginning. I have to ask, was the car an automatic or a stick Automatic. It was an automatic. Yeah. How did you do? Did you run it, make more than one pass? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't, really, I don't even remember. Did you ever race it on the street? Uh, of course. <laughs> that, that was the thing, right? Uh, only had one drag strip there. There's an old abandoned airfield and only raced once a month, you know. What was the name of the drag strip? Uh, Kuhuku drag strip. Say that again? Kuhuku drag strip, right. And then uh, they built a designated regular drag strip later on in 64. And uh, it went till oh, about 10 years ago. And now there isn't any drag strip in Honolulu as we speak. Is there one in Hawaii anywhere? No, not on the island of, uh, in Honolulu. Mm -hmm. But there's one in Maui, Hilo, the big island, and Kauai. But mm -hmm. none in, in uh, Oahu. So you had these experiences with your mom's Oldsmobile. Right. What was the next thing you did? Did you get your own car? Uh, yeah, I was kind of a spoiled kid. I put my mom's car back together. Uh, she said if I did, and I uh, bought a brand new Corvette uh, that I wasn't supposed to race. But Now, wait a minute. You said you put your mom's car back. What does that mean? What did you, well, what had you done to your mom's car? It was all hopped up and uh, lowered and all that. And, you know, there were business people, uh, my father and mother, and the Oldsmobile were their going out car, so to speak. Anyway, uh, I got a brand new vet but I, that I'm not supposed to race. Uh, but I guess uh, that didn't last very long. Hmm. And uh, What year was the Corvette? Yeah, Corvette was 61. And I put a uh, Hillborn fuel injection on it. And 
And like I say, I was like 17 years old. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, that was a real beginning. And then I... Uh, and you raced that car in Hawaii? Yes, I did. Yeah. What, what kind of times did it run? I don't even remember. <laughs> Too long ago. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, then I uh, talked my parents into, or my mom into uh, sending me up here to the mainland and got a job with uh, Jim Nelson, a dragmaster company. Mm -hmm. How did you do that? How did you find him and find your way into well, that Well, <clears throat> there was a speed shop in Hawaii that I hung out with. And the owner at the time, older than me, uh, talked my mom into being partners. And we built a dragster. Dragmaster built a dragster. Uh, we're going to use it for advertisement and, you know, for the speech. Anyway, uh, I guess along the way that didn't work out. So he bought my mom out of the business. And I ended up with a dragster, so that's how I got to know Jim Nelson. And he came to Hawaii to teach us how to run it. So I talked my parents into my mom, actually, uh, letting me come to the mainland and go to work for him. And uh, I went to work for him, sweeping the floor and just doing odd jobs. And, and uh, like I said, my first job was to pull the engine out of this tooth thing. Uh, that Dale Martin drove, blew the engine at Long Beach. It was two Chevys engines side by side, and you had to pull both of them to, out together. Well, I never, except for my dragster, I didn't know, which I never pulled the engine out of. Uh, so it kind of took me all day. I got the, got the engine all apart, I mean, uh, ready to pull out. And I remember uh didn't have electric hoist in those days, the uh, chain ones and jumped on there. I couldn't even budget off the chassis, both engines at the same time. Anyway, uh, then I built my own uh, injected uh, dragster, raced it around California, took it to Hawaii, uh, raced it there, won some races, sold it. And this was a car that you built at Dragmaster right. in California? Right. And then I came back and built uh, a blown one raced it a couple of times in around Southern California, took it to Hawaii. I set the track record there at 180, uh, 850 back in 1964. Uh, won the first race when they opened the brand new drag strip up there. Sold it, and because and I had a fuel car being built, because that car, you know, as you go along, got to be too slow. Ordered an engine from Key Black, and uh, Kind of duplicated the Greer Black and Perdon cars for chassis and body. And uh, on my maiden voyage at uh, Long Beach, uh, I didn't know at the time, but I was supposed to make a half a run. I legged it all the way through in 191 in 801 in 1964, which I guess was pretty good at the time, and ended up crashing the car at the end because I couldn't find the parachute handle. <laughs> because it's so different than my Dragmaster cars. Anyway, uh, got down, put on to drive it. And like I said, kind of the rest is history because uh, we ended up winning the Winter Nationals, NHRA Winter Nationals in 1965. And uh, 
Perdon never won a national event up to that time, and it's really a national event. Uh, I talked him into going back east, because after we were paid to run all the uh, race tracks around here, I figured, what, what are we going to do in the summertime, you know? They're not going to hire us again. So I talked him into uh, going back east, and uh, he booked a car. Uh, at the time, I didn't have a spare engine or an enclosed trailer. We had to build one, and off he went in May. I think uh, he was 24, and I just turned 21. And what year was this? Then? 1965. 65. And little did we know whether we could make a living or not. And here, here we are. Uh, in 2019, I'm retired, but uh, ended up doing it all alive, but all included. Yeah, you guys did okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I tell my kids, uh, dreams can come true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great lesson. Yeah. Now, I hope it's okay that when we do these things for the American Hot Rod Foundation, we get down to some pretty nitty gritty details because the whole idea is to document exactly what happened and every little nook and cranny of it. And so there are some things that you mentioned that I'd like to go back and, and talk to you about. One of them is the, this, this story of Jim Nelson coming to Hawaii and teaching you how to run this car that you had built using one of his chassis. Tell me your memories of that, because that seems like an extraordinary thing for a, a teenage kid to have that. Well, actually, the car was, the guy that owned the speed shop was supposed to drive it, okay? Uh, he was uh, oh, four or five years older than I was. I was like 16. He was like 20 or 21. Anyway, uh, had a blown Chevrolet in it. Uh, drive master actually built the whole car. So we brought it to Hawaii. And Jim Nelson came down there and showed us how to run it and actually ran it at the racetrack. Did he run it at the track or did you run it or did he both of it. you? Okay. He ran it. Yeah. And then uh, <clears throat> the owner of the speed shop that was partners with, my mom was partners with, decided that I guess he didn't need a partner no more or whatever. I don't know all the, all the incidentals. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, like I said, I was a young kid. Uh, so we got the car and flew it back to California. Uh, actually went to Winter Nationals with it, okay, and uh, left it up here. Then I, uh, when I got the uh, job with uh, Jim Nelson, that's how it started. Uh, the car was already up here, and uh, uh, I got my license to drive a dragster in that car at Riverside Raceway. Probably in 61, I think, 60 or 61. Then uh, that car was, chassis was older, shorter. So means I was working for Dragmaster. Jim Nelson let me uh, build my own car, chassis, and put it all together using parts off of that car, right, okay. Do you know if, if that car exists? No, I don't. No, I don't. I guess, I guess an outdated short wheelbase well, Chassis would have just, who knows what would have happened Then I found out that. the car I just told you about that <clears> I, <throat> I set the track record in uh, Honolulu with on, mm -hmm. on gas. Uh, <laughs> funny, I just found out last week 
that a guy in, uh, I showed it in Honolulu, and a guy evidently from Maui, another island, bought it, and uh, Ohilo, a big island. That's where the volcanoes are. Anyway, <laughs> the volcano destroyed that car. Oh. You know? Huh. It, was, it, was, it destroyed his garage and the car was in it. Oh, wow. And I just found that out last week. I was kind of looking for it. Yeah, I would think so. I would think so. The engine that was in that car, you said it was a blown Chevy. Well, originally, was it? it was a blown Chevy, my original car. But then the car I set the track record with in Hawaii was a blown 480-inch uh, uh, wedge Dodge engine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, where I got that motor from is that I kind of duplicated because Jim Nelson had one, okay, and he had a deal with Dodge, so the parts were there, okay. Mm. So I bought a block. I could get a brand new block and crank and heads, right, okay, because he had a deal with Dodge and uh, built that engine. And you did all your own engine work at that time as far yes, as I assembly did. and everything? And and where would you have learned that? Did did you were you self taught? I'm dragmaster. I beat a dragmaster because both Jim Nelson and Joe Martin built their own engines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Had you built engines when you were a kid in Hawaii, when that speed shop was going on? I didn't build engines, but I installed camshafts and in my vet and mm. you know pulled the heads off and the stuff. But never built a complete engine. Gotcha. Not until you got to California. Right. Yeah. Do you remember what it was like to arrive in California and... S well, just tell me your memories of what it was like for you to arrive in California. Well, uh, coming from Hawaii, it's not like being born and raised up here where there was a lot of people and a lot more people and everything a lot more diversified, I guess you might call it. Some people said, boy, you're pretty gutsy, you know, at that yeah. age by yourself, yeah. you know. But I didn't think so. I guess I wanted, I wanted so badly to do it that uh, I never even thought about it, you know. Mm. You know? I just came and I loved it. I can't imagine, I mean, to be car crazy, crazy specifically about drag racing and to just walk into this like every guy that you read about in Hot Rod Magazine, you would have been meeting all of them all the time at the drag strips and, well, and going first, to all the drag strips at first that you I didn't read know about. They, and, at first, I really didn't know who they are. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. uh, until I started hanging around and going to the races with Jim Nelson and Doug Martin. You know. mm -hmm. But I would think the guys coming into that shop would have been... Oh, yeah, I remember Pete Robinson after they won Indy in 1961. Uh, with a dragmaster car. Yeah. He rose up there, you know, ne never heard of him before, and here he was, right, you know. And the reason he, that, that Chevrolet car ran so good was uh, it was ultra, ultra light. He was very, you know, I guess he was an MIT grad and, you know, engineer. So he knew some stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 And who else would have been around when, who were, like, the, the core guys that were around when you, started at that shop because these are all my heroes you know Jim Nelson Keith Black I mean you're all these guys that you're meeting when you come to California it's just it's hard for me to imagine 
who you were running into. So I'll ask you again, like the, the, well, core, there was, the core guys that you... Uh, there's another guy, Ted Shear. Uh, he, I think he did our blowers for Drag Masters. I met him. Then we're going to the races. Uh, uh, I can't think early on. Uh, uh, George Botoff, because most of the gas cars, right? You know, before the fuel cars came along. Uh, because uh, <coughs> there were uh, George Botoff, uh, who else? Uh, I remember the Greek coming to Long Beach, you know, mm. and I was going to Long Beach with Jim Nelson, and uh, they both ran gas cars. That's why, you know. Yeah. And what? And what were the? Were you just going to all the drag strips, or did you have a few that you no, went to on a I schedule? I went with uh, Jim Nelson to uh, Pomona, Long Beach. When I raced my, when I built my injected. Uh, I got my license at Riverside. So that would have been the very first drag strip you went down in right. California. Right. Then I, uh, I remember uh, when I built my injected car, I won a middle eliminator at Fontana one night. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to Inyokern, and that's before uh, around San Diego, they didn't have no drag strips. And most of them were up this way, right? Uh, I remember going to Fresno, you know? Uh, winter Half Moon Bay. But like I said, in the early days, until I got to my field car, it was mostly the gas tracks that I, you know. Yeah. And, and, you know, I hear guys talk about that ran in, in those years, the differences between the tracks and what it was like to run at this track versus this track. And obviously, you know, there's elevation to contend with, but what well, do you have? What do you we, have to we say? We were young and we we weren't all that smart. <laughs> <laughs> we just wanted to run race. Yeah, you know? but were there different tracks that behaved that the car would behave differently with, or tracks that were scarier than others, or? No, I wouldn't say scarier, but we but Long Beach was always uh, the air was always good mm -hmm. near the ocean, you know. Yeah. You know. Anyway, but the drag strip wasn't all. Bite-wise, that good. And then at night when the dew came in, you had to really be careful, right? But other than that, uh, a lot of the things back then weren't as adjustable as they are now. Or I should say we weren't as smart, mostly, you know, back then. We just ran, right? Yeah. Yeah, how, how were you learning how to kind of adjust for air and... Well, climate. of course, we had uh, gauges, but then again, uh, uh, not many of us at the time, for early on, and when I first got the car, we take that many notes and kept track of a lot of that stuff, right? And more like a, <laughs> uh -huh. you know, seat of the pants, right? You know? Yeah. So... so <clears throat> You're running your gas car, you're running gas class, and um, you've told me about this incident with your, the first time you ran a, a, ta a fuel car. Up until that point, your focus and your drive and your passion is to be a driver, is that correct? 
I guess, yeah, you might say so. That's all I knew <laughs> at the time. Yeah. And then when I crashed, like I said, I was uh, uh, 19 years old and uh, I had to call home. And at the time, uh, 19, maybe I was 20. I can remember my mom saying, uh, oh, you, uh, you're married now and whatever, whatever, you better think about what you're doing, right? But at that age, who thinks about what they're doing, right? Had you had your daughter at that point? I might have. I might have had. Anyway. What happened in the crash? I, I, I'm interested. Well, I couldn't find in... a parachute handle, so I ran off the end. Yeah. And I hit the side that said the end. Ended up on the railroad tracks there. Okay. Did you get hurt? No, I didn't get hurt. Did the car, did the car stay wheels down? Wheels down, yeah. <laughs> but it had to be front half. Okay. So I front had the car, and uh, like I say, uh, Black says, uh, he said, man, I said, I don't know if I can go racing with you anymore. I said, why is that, Keith? So he scared me so bad that uh, if something happened to you or you got hurt or killed, I don't know what I'd do. And he said, uh, I'm going to give up running the Greer Black and Perdon car, so maybe you ought to hire Perdon to drive it and you run the car. And uh, like I say, being what my mom, my mom told <laughs> said and that I said well okay and I did it and I hired Perdone and uh, uh, off we went and the rest is history. Yeah but but in that moment were you making the decision that I guess I shouldn't be a driver or were you just kind of no, the I, momentum was just kind of pulling you towards? I would say that we were more we were so young we me was so young at the time that uh, I would say we do more things uh, on emotion or spur the moment, whatever you might call it, you know, as, a, as opposed to sitting down and really thinking about it. Sure. So as far as you were concerned, maybe you would drive again. W was that kind of your thinking? Like, maybe I will, maybe I, you, you just were... You just I, really, I really don't know. I never thought about it. You just wanted to be in drag racing no matter what that meant, I guess. Yeah, and then along the way, I just started going, and we started winning and beating up and doing, you know, running all over the country, and which is a lot of fun. And uh, like I say, I said, uh, we were getting paid. Nobody knew who I was. I was just a kid from Hawaii. Uh, around the West Coast here, they knew Padone because of the rear black and Padone car. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so we raced all up and down the coast, and uh, that's when I told Perdon that uh, that we ought to go back east, you know, and race with the big guys, Carlitz and Coletta and Ram Chargers, you know. And uh, had you had you seen those guys race? Had they been yeah, to they, races where you yeah they you were guys at Pomona, been, yeah, yeah, you know, in '65 when we were fortunate enough to end up winning the race, and uh, he said okay, and. Uh, off we went. You know? And what was that? Because now you've come from Hawaii to California. You've experienced California. You've seen this crazy huge picture that is California. Now you're just heading out across the country. I mean, what, what was that like? Well, uh, when I had my gas car, uh, one of my injected cars I went to Indy with, I think in 1961. Okay, so you had done this before. You had at least driven across the country right. out to the mm -hmm. Midwest. Uh, so I, I 
I guess we just won the race. Yeah. Okay? And uh, <clears throat> we were, I wouldn't say the laughing stock, but people in the top field community kind of, uh, you know, here we are, Padone, he never, Padone was a driver, he never worked on them, you know. And nobody knew I was, okay. And they all knew Keith Black, because we were black and Padone car. So the, the big thing was, well, we'll see how them guys do on the road by themselves, right, you know. And who, and who was traveling? Just me and him. Just you and Prudhomme? Yeah. Just the two of you? Just two And were you, did you have a pickup truck and a trailer with the car on it, or what were you driving? Actually, we won a Ford Camper at the, as a winner nationals. That was a prize. So we, we kept that and decided to use that to go on the road. So like a pickup truck chassis camper? No, no. It was a camper, but not a pickup truck. It was a regular. Oh, like a proper, fully enclosed, like, kind of sat up front. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had a thing over the cab. Yep. Sleeper. Anyway, only one thing wrong. Drag shifts were smaller. Uh, this big old thing was kind of awkward. Uh, it had a small gas tank, a single gas tank when we got it. Oh, and man. we spent more time in the service than she did on the road our, our first trip out. Uh, Probably didn't go very fast on the highway. No. <clears throat> so <clears throat> after about a month, I think, uh, somebody asked me if I wanted to sell it. And I was in Chicago. We were in Chicago. I said, sure. Sold it. Got the money, ran right down to Mr. Norm's down there in Chicago, and bought a station wagon. No kidding. Yeah. From Grand Spalding Dodge. Yep. yep. How cool is that? Yeah. And, and what? And that was in 60, 65. 65. So you bought a big Chrysler Plymouth station Dodge. wagon. Dodge. Dodge station wagon. Okay. The one that had the wood sides. You know, yeah. Really nice looking. Anyway, uh, our, our first race, match race, we had, coming from California, was at Rockford, Illinois. And we raced a jet. I never raced a jet before. So I'm on a, I remember, <clears throat> pushed down, started the car, came around. Uh, uh, here's this big old thing, whistling and making all this noise and smoke and fire coming on the back. Scared me so bad, I didn't even get out of the truck. I rolled down the window and I waved Perdon up and <laughs> rolled up the window, right? Well, Perdon raced those jet cars before, right, in California, so okay. he knew exactly, right? You yeah. Know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that was an experience. You and thought, then, I'll let him deal with this. <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, after that race, uh, we ended up at the Greek's place, Chris Carmasini's, so we actually known him for a long time, right? And actually worked at his shop on the car, you know? So that was a start. Was so a start. you had you had met Caramassini's when he had come out west. No, before. So that's when you met him. Well, Perdon kind of knew him because they raced him with the gray, black, and Perdon car. But I had never met him. So you're getting to know all the players out there across the country. Yeah. Sooner or later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then we toured around and uh, match raced and. Ended up at Indy, and uh, was fortunate enough to win Indy. Well, at the time, that was the first time any team had won 
the Winter Nationals and the Nationals the same year. The same year, yeah. So that was a big thing. And then uh, Wednesday night, after Indy, uh, a Detroit driver had a big race where all the same guys, Garlitz and, and the Greek and the ranchers, everybody went to. Had X amount of money up, I don't remember how much. But we were paid to go because we won Indy. So we went there, but all night, and ended up winning that race too, beating all the guys, right, you know. And so that was a big thing. Then that weekend, uh, there was a race in West Salem, Ohio, okay, and we qualified number one and got rained out. And uh, so Padron and I flew home and then uh, flew back, you know, for the next week to run the race, right, you know. Mm. So we had, we had a hell of a busy week, right, because we, we raced a weekend before Indy. We were at Indy for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, <laughs> right, <laughs> raced Wednesday in Detroit. And then was in West Salem, Ohio, the next race on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Yeah, you're really on tour. Yeah, on yeah. tour. Yeah. But that's the way it was, right? <clears throat> yeah, I had to make a living. Yeah. Yeah. And were you, do you remember at that time feeling like this could make sense? That the, that the money that was coming in was covering everything and then some? You were going right. to go home with money in your pocket. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, being we won Indy, you know, when we came home here, you know, Drags just wanted to see us again, so we yeah. were very fortunate to get, get paid to run yeah. in. Right? It, it had to have changed everything yeah. for you guys. Yeah. Do you think Prudhomme looks at this exactly the same way? Do you think he looks at this as that was the moment? That was the launch? Well, I, I, I tell him, and I tell people, I think anyway, that, uh, that Hawaiian dragster made both our careers, so to speak. Uh, the next year he quit, Perdon did, because uh, B&M gave him a car to run. So I got another young driver uh, named, named Mike Snively. He was a year older than me. No, okay, I'm 21 now and he's 22, right? <laughs> And went to Pomona and a winning Pomona again. Well, prior to that, not, not too many guys know this, Perón booked a car originally in 1965. Okay. So now he quit. So I'm calling the drag, this is before Pomona, the winner national. I'm calling the drag shit. Hi, this is Ron Leong. I own the Hawaiian. You know, want to know if you can use me. And all, at first, all I heard was, oh, we already got Perón. Well, after two or three times, I hung up the phone. I didn't know what to do. Anyway, uh, ironically, we went in Pomona, and then uh, they started calling me. Yeah, that'll teach him. <laughs> and then <laughs> off we went. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> went on tour, and uh, ended up winning the Nationals again. And like I say, that was just uh, really unreal as far as one team winning four of the biggest races in two years, you know, so. That's for sure. When, when Prudhomme got this B&M car, was there not a conversation about you coming along on that? No, because he knew I was, you know, I was gonna run my own car, right? So you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have set that, that car aside and, and yeah. 
No. Huh. I was my own boss. Well, yeah. <laughs> Apparently so. Yeah. Now, you have these two incredible years back to back. When was it that you felt like funny cars were interest, getting interesting to you? Well, in 67, I won uh, the U.S. Fuel and Gas Championship at Bakersfield, the March meet. Uh, I won the Hot Rod Magazine meet at Riverside. Didn't win Indy or Pomona, but won a lot of big races. But I noticed along the way, more so in 68, that uh, the funny cars were getting more dates than we were, the dragsters. And that's why they decided to build a funny car. Hmm. In 68? End of 68. End of 68. So my first funny car was 69. Right? Were there new things to learn with, with that, with running an enclosed car? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And an automatic transmission, which we never ran. Okay, had wheelie bars are just totally different, totally, you know. And but I guess we learned pretty quick. <laughs> I guess Thankfully. you did. Yeah, who were, who were the guys that were around that had kind of figured that out pretty quickly? Well, you know, Jungle Jim and, you know, I, I don't, you know, there were a couple of them. You know, the Shytown Hustler, uh, I think even Schumacher was there. You know, but anyway, I uh, crashed the car at our, our, at our initial, uh, my brand new funny car, Pomona. Oh, first time out. First time out. Hmm. Anyway, the, and the reason was, was that uh, uh, we didn't have a rear spoiler. Anyway, uh, I, I called Dodge and asked them, and they said, well, the, the NASCAR cars didn't have them. And they were running 200 plus, right over 200. And the funny cars had it. Well, <clears throat> what they didn't take into consideration was that the funny cars were a little, a little higher because of rear tires, I guess. And was almost half the weight difference, you know, at the time. Anyway, uh, so crashed the car and then uh, rebuilt it and uh, came back and now. Uh, First, first outing, uh, there was three races in California here uh, on Memorial Day weekend, and we won Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, and that was a start. You know? Then the next year at Pomona, we ended up winning Pomona in uh, 1970 with my funny car. In, this, in the same car, that first no. Hawaiian. Uh, no, the first Hawaiian was destroyed. Had to re oh, okay. build a brand new car. Okay. okay. And that's when we So won. it was a bad crash. <laughs> yeah, bad crash. Upside down. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Made the front page of LA Times. <laughs> oh, wow. Front cover of Car Crab Magazine. And anyway, uh, then I built a new car in 71 and went to Pomona, ended up winning Pomona again in 71. So. Wow. Did it, did it make any difference to you at all that it, that it wasn't top fuel? No, I guess not because it was still fuel. Sure. Still nitro. But uh, kind of a different style car and a different group of folks and... and uh... Yeah, but I don't know. No, I, don't think so. I don't think it bothered me. Well, and it, it, I wasn't there, but in my... My understanding of it is it sounds like 
it was kind of the new hot thing. Right. It was the thing that people were really excited about. And I guess I was one of the first of the dragster guys, one of the dragster guys to go funny cars, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, then after that, you know, Perdon McEwen and you know them kind of guys uh, started doing it, you know. Yeah, and that really, I mean, at the beginning of the 70s, there was kind of no, nothing more popular than that, was there? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I remember the dragsters, like at Indy, I think the 65 or 66, I bet there were 50 or 60 dragsters there, front Indian dragsters. It was big. As compared to how many funny cars, would you say? Not even close. 30, maybe. Yeah. 32. Would you say, would you agree that, well, you would know, you were there. (laughs) It seems to me like this is now the time, the early 1970s, bigger and bigger sponsorship. It's getting more expensive. Is this now a time in your career where you're having to kind of play a little bit of a businessman and kind of understand the bigger money and the bigger sponsorship and how to keep this thing going and where's the money coming from? It was, was the business aspect of it kind of starting to bear down on you and become a, a well, it source of anxiety? <laughs> yeah, but it always was because, uh, you know, when you have a family and, and uh, doing something that uh, uh, I guess... Uh, it wasn't an eight to five, you know, where you could depend on getting a paycheck, right? Uh, you had to think about all, I guess, you just did it without thinking, how's that? You know, and did whatever, whatever it took, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it just seems to me like the 70s was when... Well, 70s, time. yeah, but more late 70s and 80s, it really started. Okay. It started to get... You know. Well, I, I should just ask you, how do you classify the 70s? How do you think of the 70s for you? And what does drag racing in the 70s mean to you? Man, I don't know. <laughs> you were too busy drag racing. <laughs> Everything all kind of runs together, you know, and like a uh, guy says, uh, what year was that car? Jeez, I don't remember. Yeah. You know, uh, when did you have the Avante CB? Antenna car. When do you have the King's Hawaiian bread car? You know. I know I had Hawaiian punch for 10 years. And uh, so it must have been I, up to 91. They got bought out. Hawaiian punch got bought out by Procter & Grammar. They were owned by Del Monte at the time. The new company, I was with them for a year, Procter & Grammar. And then they changed marketing people. And uh, they decided not to go drag racing. Mm. And... Uh, that's the way uh, Bernstein, Perdon, lost Budweiser, Bernstein, and Perdon lost uh, U.S. Tobacco and Miller uh, when they changed marketing people. And uh, it, can, it happens yeah. all the time. And it's just the way life is or business is or whatever you might call it, you know. So then I, <clears throat> after that, uh, I ran a Hawaiian vacation car that's supposed to be a three-year deal that the state wanted me to run to the uh, Center of Tourism. Uh, well, that got, uh, how should I say, 
that was more of a political thing that I got caught up in. <laughs> anyway, uh, so when that deal didn't go through, supposed to be a three-year deal, lasted six months. I couldn't find anything. I didn't find anything, so I decided to retire. And then Padron, all these different teams started hiring me to run their cars. So I did that until well, somewhere in the early 2000s. And then uh, I didn't like the traveling, <laughs> going on the road so much. So uh, then guys started asking me to run their nostalgia cars, so I started doing that. You know? And I guess at 75, I'm still doing it, sort of. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, you, you know, you brought something, you brought up something that I had been thinking about, and uh, I'm glad you brought me back around to it. I'm just kind of curious to know, like, what, what was it like for you and the state of Hawaii? It seems to me that the state of Hawaii must have had a lot of pride for, for your accomplishments. Did they recognize you? Well, not really. Well, drag racing, I guess, never was really big there. Probably still is it. <laughs> the reason the Hawaiian vacation car came about is, uh, I don't know if you remember back when they had that uh, Virginia for Lovers car, NASCAR. Well, I guess uh, they wanted to kind of, well, the center of tourism at the time, kind of wanted to uh, uh, use that as a tourism marketing tool. Uh, we had things set up with NHRA and everything but it had to go through some channels, and it wasn't the uh, center of tourists' fault, but uh, down the line, well, I don't know, it got messed up. But, uh, hmm. Sounds like politicians were involved. You got it. <laughs> and you know, I never had dealt with them. I dealt with companies uh, all my life. Uh, did a lot of sponsorships on handshakes, right? Uh, no contracts, you know? But uh, that taught me a valuable lesson. Mm. Mm. Well, speaking of relationships, so another thing I'm curious about is as you're entering the funny car world and having your success there, obviously Prudhomme is there too. And what were, were you guys friends at that point? Yeah, yeah. Were you always pretty friendly? Yeah, in 1972, I think, when I had my Revell Hawaiian car, uh, my whole rig got stolen back east. Uh, they found the truck empty. Everything I had, drag racing. Tools, uniforms, fire suits, everything. Emptied the truck. And what year was this? I think 1972. Okay. And so, what to, where did this happen? It happened in uh, Gary, Indiana. We raised US 30 at the time. Anyway. Uh, was this after the race weekend or before? Yeah, after the race after weekend. After the race weekend. So I drove the truck home. And uh, you know, all along, my kids were young, but didn't spend much time in the summertime home because on the road so much. Uh, so I kind of relapsed and, and uh, took them to the beach and hung out with them. They were young. <clears throat> anyway, uh, then I figured, Jesus Christ, uh, either I got to go get a job or what am I going to do, right? Well, I, I decided to go drag back to racing. 
So I, uh, I bought Ray Alley's uh, Dodge Charger, John Viterra Fonica, okay. that Bernstein drove. And it was kind of a, my car was a brand new car my, that got stolen, it was a Viterra car, Dodge Charger car. But anyway, so it was kind of a duplicate, right, okay. Called the company, different companies out, and uh, they gave me deals. Uh, uh, on parts, gave me parts, whatever, whatever, and I went back on the road. Anyway, uh, uh, my biggest supporter at the time was Keith Black. He says, uh, <coughs> charge anything you want and pay me when you can. So I got the car all done and, and, and off I went, you know. And uh, like I say, uh, then I was, I guess I was really committed, you know, <coughs> at the time. And uh, it was tough for a lot of years, for a couple of years, because uh, uh, no insurance. Anyway, fortunately, I uh, did well enough that uh, to be recognized, I guess, as a, a contender, you might say. And uh, so companies be believed in me and uh, sponsored me and gave me, you know, helped me in parts and, you know. Mm -hmm. Like I said, the biggest one being uh, Keith Black. Yeah. It sounds like he was uh, a very good friend to you all along the way. Well, like I tell guys, I've been with him since 1964 to the day he died, you know, which was in, I think, in 1990 or 91. Okay? Mm. And I was probably the last drag racer to see him before he went in the hospital and passed away. You know? He died of a, a brain tumor. Mm. I think he was 65 at the time. You know, you you told me that this story just now about your all your stuff getting stolen and your car getting stolen. That was a, an answer to my question about uh, if you were you and Prudhomme were friends. Did well, he play into that story yeah, at all? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I decided to go back racing, I called Prudhomme and asked him if he got anything, you know, for sale. And he said, "Yeah, I'll come up to the shop." At the time, he was with Ed Pink. Because Ed Pink, along the way, had the combination where Black was kind of struggling. Anyway, uh, so I went up to the shop. <clears throat> she said, go upstairs and look, you know, got stuff up there. So I found a lot of stuff, you know, well-covered, manifold, different things. I said, okay, I want to see how much you want for it. He said, it's yours. So that was big, you know, big. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Well, speaking of Keith Black, because this is just, I don't think it could ever be overstated how important the 426 Hemi is in, in this sport. And it's just an incredible thing that that is still the gold standard, that everything is kind of based off that First of all, motor. And you were there when I was the, Keith Black was figuring that thing out. I was the third... One of, I think, the third person to run top field with a late model Hemi 426, garless Ram Chargers, you know. And the reason I did was because Black had a contract with uh, Chrysler at the time, building boat engines, mostly round and round boat engines. Uh, anyway, uh, the Chrysler guy at the time came to me and says, hey, uh, I have keep building an engine. Maintain it, 
you build a car and you guys go run it. So I said, okay. And I did that for about a year. But <clears throat> Keith stayed in California renting the car. And I had my own car, my 392 car, which was, you know, fast. Didn't have to experiment. I you know, knew what we were doing. So I ran that. And then the next year, I put the late Marahemi and ran it all that year. Okay. And then, in the meantime, from that car, uh, uh, we made big advances because I was running it all the time, right? And came up, Keith came out of combination. Okay. Actually, at the time, unbeknownst to a lot of people, the car had so much power, more power after we figured it out, that the reason it didn't run as good because it smoked the tires too, too hard. Anyway, when I started running it, the first time I ran, I remember, I told Keith, hey, uh, I want, I'm going to go to Irondale. And he says, uh, okay, you build, the, you build engines, go get the parts and put it together. And I can't go. He said he couldn't go that weekend. Okay. So I put it all together, went out there, and I was struggled. car didn't want to run. Okay. Anyway, I was too used to looking at my 392 when I built the engine. The guy gave me the wrong rods, and the rods were too short. So the compression was really low. Hmm. So when I came back, I told Black, then he built a D-stroker motor, okay, 396-incher. And, and that's, the, that's the motor that was cut on the forefront when Perón got his own car in 69, okay? And I ran, it, I ran the car because I crashed my funny car. Well, he went to Black and bought a complete engine, and that was the same engine I ran. You know, these stroker engines. Anyway, uh, uh, I ran the car for him in California. Then he went on tour, and I had my funny car. So then uh, I didn't see him. I talked to him now, and you know, on tour. And then at Indy, he called me for Indy. He says, hey, I want you to run my car in Indy. I said, okay. So I ran the car in Indy, and we won Indy in 69 with that engine. Okay. Hmm. And then uh, we also won it in 70. With his that car, his car, I wanted. I read that car in seventy for him too. You know. What was the concept behind the destroking? Well, it had so much power, the, the regular four twenty six. Okay, so he built the, and then and that engine was it was great because uh, me and Perdon we put the can in hundred percent. We ran when we were at Indy, right? Well, you already heard that baby, right? You know, you know. Oh, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> But but it, it stopped the from the thing wanting to smoke the tires, so, you know. And then another thing that was important, I don't know what year it was, uh, I think it was in 68. This is when Mike Sorokin got killed at Orange County when the clutch blew up. Well, unbeknownst to us, he drove the first 426 car and black ran it. And he was very good at riding the clutch pedal with his foot, making the clutch slip. And that's why that car even was halfway successful. Well, 
But I decided I only want one car and, and, and kept Mike Snyder because he was with me longer. Man, we had a hard time because the car only wanted to smoke the tires so hard. Anyway, the same night Sorokin got killed at, at Orange County, I blew a clutch up in my that car, 426 car. And the floater plate was sitting in the cab with Snively. Come through the cab. Luckily, nobody got hurt. Well, Black says, hey, I don't think we're going to run this car until you know, we come up with something else. Well, the next weekend, I had a match race with Garlitz in Vegas. And I told Black, you know, I got to go, you know. <laughs> it's got paid, right? <laughs> Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Finally, Black said, hey, we found it. I said, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's when we put the first three-disc clutch in the car. Okay. And unbeknownst to anybody, right, the 426, the back of the crank to the back of the block is five-eighths of an inch closer. Okay. Mm. So everything fit in there. Okay. If you had a 392, you'd have to put a five-eighths aluminum spacer between the back of the block and the clutch can to fit everything in there. So we ran that clutch for uh, two, three months. We put the car in the trailer and <laughs> drove down a couple streets and unloaded the car because we had to put the engine in the car to get the clutch, the front engine car, right? Fixed the clutch and then rolled the car back in and guys said, Jesus Christ, where did they go? You know? Anyway, uh, so I kept it a secret all that time, right? You know? And a couple of guys at Blacks, I remember they come by and they look, you know. But what I, what I would do is I'd never take the thing apart until everybody went home. Then I separated everything like I only had a two disc. So guys would come by and they look, oh, just sitting there, you know. <laughs> Finally, uh, I told Black, I said, hey, no way I can keep this a secret. I'll go back east, right? You know, I got to work at too many different places and, you know, guys shop and all that. So he came up with it. And who actually helped him come up with all that was Schieffer, because we were kind of sponsored by Schieffer all along, right? Okay. And then at the same time, Black made the pressure plates where the spring pressure was adjustable. Okay. And uh, part, of, uh, <clears throat> part of our success at the time was Black was slipping the clutch more so than a lot of other people way back when. Okay, way back when, meaning when he had the gray, black, and brown car. Mm -hmm. And that's why that car was so successful. So basically, we were kind of one of the first guys to come up with a three disc clutch. Well, well keep black ones, I should say. Right. Wow. That's pretty important. Yeah. <laughs> but then. Mike Snyder and I in 66 were going back east. First race was in Amarillo, Texas. Going through the desert, California. Midnight, 11 o'clock, night. 57 Chevy, pulling a 57 Chevy, passing us. Like flat towing it? Flat towing. Yeah. And they had these small bridges, you know, along the way. 
We went into the back car. I evidently hit a bridge. So the guy turned the wheel, cut us off. I was sleeping in the back seat. The only window in the station wagon that wasn't broken was the one I was sitting next to. Caught it in the upside down. Okay. Looked for the trailer, couldn't find it. It went in the desert, like maybe a quarter of a mile or more in the desert. Broke off the wagon. Anyway, came back, had to front half the car, buy a new wagon, rebuild the trailer. Okay. Uh, and went again. And the new wagon was a light blue one as opposed to the black one. Uh-huh. Okay. Another hey, thing. But you were okay in the <laughs> yeah, accident? Yeah, nobody got hurt. It's incredible. People in the other car, both of them ended up upside down, and nobody got hurt, thankfully. That's incredible. Yeah. And this happened out in the middle of nowhere? Middle of nowhere. What midnight. You... No lights, couldn't see nothing. Yeah, I mean, did, did what happened? I mean, did somebody come along and see the wreckage? Or... I guess, yeah. Anyway, and, and you know how some uh, how sometimes uh, you learn a lot by mistakes. I remember uh, this one night, Fontana. Fontana was a pretty slippery track, and uh, we beat everybody big time. Okay. I get back to the shop one day. I'm taking the car all apart. And I look. I actually messed up, and I put the clutch this in backwards where the two hubs were hitting each other. So the clutch slipped like a mother, right? Hmm, that's why I ran so much, so good, okay? Well, at different times I tried to duplicate it, and that, but I didn't, I didn't know how thick the discs were to begin with, see? Uh-huh. You know, so I come close, but you know, that gave us an idea of more or less at times what we had to do or, or what we did, you know? Wow. But remember, we didn't have adjustable springs, pressure, and all that then. I asked you a minute ago about, again, about some of the kind of the things you had to learn to make the 426 run. And I know that one of the issues with it that was that needed to be discovered was where the timing, because ignition timing on the 426 was a bit well, a bit different than what the 392, was that? wasn't it? What happened, remember I told you the Chrysler guy gave us the engine, right? Okay. We know to run it, and the, at first the car wouldn't run that good. Well, we're used to running uh, 23 to 28 degrees in the make, right? The 392. Yeah. So I remember the guy, I think we had the mag up to 28 or 30, maybe even 32. And the Chrysler guy came one day and he says, hey, we're going to, I want to go run, test the car at Irondale with you guys. Okay. So off we went. And he told Black, he said, put 40 in the mag. Well, Black is really a conservative guy, right? And the eyes got about that big. Of course, the guy said, put 40 in the mag. It's, they own the engine. <laughs> put 40 in the mag. It's their engine. Yeah. Boom. Boy, the thing ran better, right? So then came back. I don't remember exactly, but I... I bet he told me at least put 45 in it, and it, and it ran better, you know. But then that's when he started to really make the power, right? Well, come to find out, the biggest thing was the combustion chamber was so big, right, compared to the 392s. 
That's why you could run so much lead. You know? mm -hmm. I remember back east, at times we run as much as 70 plus degrees in it. In the summertime, the bad air, you know. Yeah, no big deal. 70, 75 degrees, like nothing. My God. Yeah. Well, that to me seems like something that, like you say, that that's a really important point, I think, that you, you, you say, well, Keith Black, he was very conservative. Well, like any great engine builder, right? you, you go in small yeah. increments. But, you know, us racers, me and Perdomo racers, right? Yeah, and you want to go. <laughs> yeah, we want to win. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but, he, but he wants to keep his engine together. Yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, uh, Keith Black was a Hillborn guy, right? Well, all of a sudden... This car from up north, Dragster, was running really fast, faster than we could run, a couple of weeks in a row. And then they had an ad, Enderly ad, you know. Hmm. When a black I said, hey, we're going to buy an Enderly injector. Well, this is very early on, right? And he looked at me, but, you know, customer's always right, right? You know. And at the time, what it was is that Henry was the first to come out with port nozzles, you know, mm. in a manifold, right? So that was the big thing then, mm. right? Mm. And then this one year, I think it was in 66, yeah, racing back east, I called Black, I says, hey, man, I'm out of pump. What do you mean out of pump? I said, well, I'll send the pump back to Enderley, and the pump's good. And I got a block-off jet in there. Can't get no nitro in it, no fuel in it. Two, three weeks later or whatever, Calvin says, uh, we're handled for Indy. I said, oh, really? What do you mean? He says, uh, Hillborn's making us a pump. Okay. Only one condition. I said, what's that? He said, Hillborn says he don't want to see it on another injector. Mm. Oh, Okay. I had to go buy another Hillborn injector, right? And uh, had the pump and ended up win uh, winning Indy with it, mm. you know? And I remember the pump was so big, we went from uh, being everything blocked off with our Indy pump to 175 jet in the Hillborn pump. And Hillborn made this giant uh, uh, gear pump, right? Vein pump, yeah. Way back, way back in '66. Right? Yeah, yeah. And were you dealing directly with Stu back then? Keith what? was. Keith was '66. Yeah. 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 So he would have still. I, been... I, I didn't even know him. But my claim to fame is, well, two of my claim to fame. Number one is getting running caps. His first funny car win. Okay, when I worked for Bordeaux. But prior to that was, uh, oh no, after that was. Uh, Introducing Stu Hillborn to Ken Enderley. Uh. <laughs> they never met each other personally. Okay. Just so happened, I was inducted in the Godless Hall of Fame, same time Enderley and Hillborn were. So up there on the stage, I made a joke. I said, Hey, Ken, you know Stu Hillborn, don't you? He said, No. I said, Really? He said, No. And I guess they never personally met each other. I said, <laughs> Ken Enderley, this is Stu Hillborn. Stu Hillborn, this is Ken Enderley. So that's my claim to fame. 
And as you know, the, as we speak, they're both uh, not here anymore. Right? Yeah. So it'd be like uh, introducing Jack Engel to Ed Iskandarian. <laughs> yeah, Jack Engel was gone, but Iskandarian is still here. Boy, he, he's going to outlive everybody on the planet. Tell him the I think. Ninety-seven shoppers attack. Right? Yeah, yeah. Did you do much business with him? Did you ever do no, business with No, I was with an Angle guy. Yeah. You were always an Angle guy, yeah. Well, then I went to Arison, and, uh, but I don't know why I never, never Indy. Well, one, one story was that uh, when I first met Indy, when I first met Iskandarian, uh, I don't know how old I was or what year it was even, but uh, he all, every, every time I see him, he says, hey, pal, I said, Hi, Ed. He said, hey, pal. So I figured, well, you know, that was his thing in National Drag still, or Drag News, right? Uh, pal, he called him by pal. So I figured, well, you know, all the people he meets, he can't remember everybody's name, right? So I remember uh, they had a big deal for uh, Perona McEwen Hot Wheels, Mattel did, at this, uh, everybody bought tables, and it was a big, anyway. I was invited, Perdon invited me in. So after the deal was all over, I walked outside and Ed was there. I said, hi, Ed. He said, hi, Roland. I said, I had a heart attack, right? Because up to that time, I, I never thought he remembered my, you know, knew my name, right? <laughs> so, no, I think that was in, jeez, uh, I don't even know what year, it was in the 90s, maybe, maybe in 2000. Oh, my gosh, wow. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, claims to fame. I just want to throw this at you. What if you had to make a list of your high points, the things you're most proud of, your your favorite accomplishments? What would that list uh, include? Well, I guess you know winning the those nationals early on in 1991 with my Hawaiian Punch Funny Car. Uh, uh, we beat up everybody at Indy. I was fortunate enough to win the race, uh, big butt shootout, and everything. Anyway, uh, I tell people we started too late when the car started to run, you know, to win the championship. You know, we came in second behind Forrest. But uh, <clears throat> I think we broke the NHRA mile per hour record four or five times that year. And if they gave points for top speed of the race and um, for the mile an hour record, we'd have won the championship. But at the time, they only gave points for low ET of the meet and low ET, I mean, for the national record, right? But at Indy, we uh, had low ET, top time, Set new national speed record, uh, won the race at a big bus shooter. So we took everything there was there, which mm -hmm. was, was a big accomplishment, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, I guess the biggest one, biggest is uh, uh, being able to do something that uh, a lot of people just dreamed of doing and uh, being able to do it for a living in uh, all these years and... Uh, Still here, I guess, you know. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that.
But if, if you're up for about five minutes more, I just want to ask you about what do you think about the nostalgia drag racing scene and, and circuit and, and the events and, and all that? Because it's probably something you couldn't have ever imagined would happen when you were 22 years old in the 1960s that people are actually going to race these cars in 55, 60 years. But uh, no, but then again, now uh, in those days, it's all about the big show. Right. Only, there was only one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think it's great. I think there's a, a people. It's a lot more affordable for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of seems like a lot of older uh, drag racers love it, like it. Uh, but the biggest thing is uh, how we're going to get the younger generation interested in drag racing. That's the biggest thing. You know, everything else doesn't matter to me because if we don't get the next generation into it, then where, where's it, where will it all go? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and you most of these engines and cars nowadays, unless they're a muscle car, you know, uh, you know, you ain't gonna race them. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, like I said, where where is it all going? Right. So, bottom line, I know NHRA is trying, uh, trying to you know, see how to get the next generation. Uh, yeah. More interested in the sport. Yeah. Do you feel like you see that in the in the nostalgia drag racing that some younger people? <laughs> come out just to see what the old days were well were a, lo like? a lot of the yeah yeah a lot of the uh, older you know on uh, they bring the grandsons exactly you know yeah yeah right you know and uh, I see that too at the at those events I see it looks like families come out right and uh, <laughs> Not that that doesn't happen, won't happen at the Nationals this weekend, you know, at the Winter Nationals, but well, it's different. Me, There's something well, different to, about the nostalgia circuit. I think uh, one thing is that it's a lot more affordable, right? I mean, for the price of tickets nowadays. And, uh, oh, God, yeah. Right? You know, when you bring a family, I mean, just to eat <laughs> would kill you. Yes. <laughs> or sit you back, whatever you might call it. Yeah. Uh, you know, so... But I think that what they need to <clears throat> is uh, somehow maybe uh, get more of the older names back in it, you know, where they can get maybe even more uh, of the that era people coming back to watch, uh, you mm -hmm. know, older, you know. Yeah. And maybe if there were more snake or mongoose or kind of cars or blue maxes and you know hawaiian cars or whatever you know yeah you know so hmm. and that could be a possibility yeah you know? it's got to be fun for you because i'm sure you see a lot of your friends at well the... like i say i uh this what i grew up on or there every i mean at the races a lot and you know so even now a lot of them uh uh, you know, just going out there just like family, right? Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, it's like when Perdon and I talk, 
You know, he says that, uh, wow. Nowadays, you know, a lot of these guys are spoiled. And, and guys might say, what do you mean? Well, in the old days, we had to do everything, okay? And we, when we blew them up, uh, blew the bodies off, did all that, we were the one that had to fix it. And I remember when uh, we couldn't even leave our trailers at a national event. We had to take them out of there and go to the hotel and work on them, okay? Then, bring them, then put them away and bring them back out to the racetrack every day. Wow. Okay. Wow. So <laughs> when guys <laughs> say they're tired or <laughs> you're not going to get much sympathy for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> I like so that. So we don't stop when we're tired. We stop when we're done. Yeah. Right. Should be and, a bumper sticker too. And that's the way we were back then. Yeah. It's unbelievable to think that it was just a two-man operation when you started driving the rig, going from town to town, Perdona and I were keeping so, the car run, I mean, all that, you know, Just course. to show you how smart we were, when Perdona and I went on tour, you know, remember, we raced Saturday night, pack all our stuff up, got to drive three, 400 miles to the next place, and load the car race again, okay? Well, that means no sleep, huh? Or somebody's going to have no sleep. Yeah. Well, we had a deal, me and Perdon, just to show how smart we were at the time. They had one guy had to stay awake, the other had to stay awake with him. <laughs> so we both ended up taking pills to stay awake. <coughs> oh my God. Talking to each other for eight hours, going to the next track, right? That's you know? really funny. And, uh, <laughs> so by the time we were done on tour, we know we knew each other's life history. <laughs> Just oh from talking, God. staying awake, right? instead of one guy sleeping and yes, and <laughs> vice versa. <laughs> and uh, Perón and I laugh at that to this day. Oh, that's great. Okay, I got one one more question, but I think Cole might have some too. Um, since you're talking about drivers and driving, um, yeah, you know, that's one thing you never brought up. Everybody. What's everybody, that? everybody that interviews me always bring up uh, uh, saying that one of my, I don't know what you might call it, uh, not claim to fame, but is having so many drivers. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And my answer to that, first of all, <laughs> remember, we were young and dumb. Okay. Uh, I was a very competitive person. And some of my drivers weren't as competitive as I was, so you can see the diff might be the difference there. Okay. The biggest thing was rule number one. The boss is always right. Mm. And you know what rule number two is? Refer to rule number one. Uh -huh. okay. <laughs> and I guess I own my own deal, so I guess uh, I could do anything I wanted. So that's my explanation of maybe why I had so many drivers. Makes sense to me. Makes sense to me. But if, but if you think about all your drivers that you had, so many of, do you have a, f a couple or a few that you think, boy, they were the best? Well, yeah, there were a lot of them that were very good. Okay. Uh, Perón, Snively, uh, 
uh, Larry Riss, he was unbelievable. Okay. Uh, to me, he had a better feel of the car than a lot of them. A lot of them. Okay. And you might say, well, what do you mean? Well, remember in those days, uh, things weren't as adjustable as they are nowadays. You know, nowadays, uh, the driver just, you got to just leave on time and keep it in the groove. Okay? Because with the computers and all the technology, we, the crew chiefs, uh, can adjust a lot of things. Okay? Mm -hmm. Larry Reyes, now that looking back at the time, okay, we had automatic transmission, three speeds, torque flights. Okay? Uh, and we raced tracks all over the country. Okay. Uh, good runs, bad runs, smooth runs, rough runs, you name it. And now that I think back, where we won, I would say, probably 90% of all match races. Okay. And where he was really good was getting the car down the track. Okay. And I know now, at times, he'd probably go from low to high. Uh, a lot of times he'd probably leave in second gear instead of low gear, okay? But remember, that's when we used to do those dry burnouts, huh? okay? But he has such a, I think, a phenomenal feel for the car, right? Mm. And that's why we won so many match races back then, you know? Mm. So, but yeah, Ron Caps is a very good. But there's a lot of them that are, are good, right? Mm. You know? Yeah. Well, they're good just for doing it, but those are the ones that st stood out. Stood out, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I think that's a great place to, uh, to wrap up and, and a nice note to go out on. And uh, I want to thank you again for your time uh, and you for talking with us today. Really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. Another fine episode of the Rodcast brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. We want to thank our guest, Roland Leong, for sharing his amazing story, for allowing us into his home to sit down with him for an evening. It really is an amazing thing to be seated across from someone like Roland and realize just what this guy has seen and done. It's definitely a humbling experience. And I want to once again thank Bruce Meyer for coming to me with this idea in the first place and for his never-ending drive to promote our Hot Rod heroes wherever and whenever he can. You're a good man, Bruce, and I have a feeling that this isn't the last time that this podcast will be influenced by Bruce. So that should give us all something to look forward to. A big thank you again to Cole Kuntz for coming through like a champ and running the recording side of this interview. Uh, he also got us on Roland's schedule. He made this happen. So uh, we got a, a not too shabby team around here for this one, for sure. Uh, and finally, for those who are regular listeners, uh, you may recognize that this is a slightly different outro than usual and there's a reason for this our usual theme song is not playing right now and i'm going to explain why see 
That tune, which is called Muddy's Log, was written by a great old friend of mine back in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, his name is Gordon Bonham, and Gordon is one of my favorite blues guitar players. He's an old bandmate of mine, and uh, I highly recommend you look him up. He is the real deal. So when I went to record this tune that you would normally be hearing right now on this outro, uh, I was able to play all the instruments needed, guitar, bass, drums, and you know get the meat and potatoes of the track complete. But the missing element was something that I have no business trying to play, and uh, that is the Hammond B3 organ. For those who know, that instrument is a language all its own, and the guys who can really play them are true artists on a whole other level. Well, it just so happened that I had a great friend and bandmate at the time and I knew he could play this part perfectly. And that guy was John Lancaster. And he did just that. We went into the studio. He played the part perfectly. He played it perfectly the first time. Uh, the B3 part that John plays on that track, this song that you're about to hear, that's the first time he played it. That's a first take. And we took a few other takes, but there was no real reason. Uh, the first take was perfect. And uh, yeah, getting to watch him lay that B3 part down was the greatest thrill of producing this song. At the time we recorded this, John and I had both been working as band members in the, the Gary Allen band. And that was a situation where, you know, I didn't really get to hear John play and really branch out. I mean, we both had a job to do and it didn't involve blues guitar or a Hammond B3 organ. So, you know, getting to hear John play like this was really jaw dropping. Um, but anyway, sadly, uh, my old friend John Lancaster passed away earlier this year. And it happens that this recording is, it's my favorite bit of music that I ever got to make with him. So I'm hoping you'll indulge me, give me a couple of minutes of your time, and really listen to John's playing on our version of Muddy's Log. It would mean a lot to me, and it's the best way I can think of honoring my great old friend uh, for the music he made and and for being the fine person that he was so anyway thanks for tuning into the show and let's roll it this one's for you jambone
Thanks for listening to another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.